going to say I appreciate your y'all's patience with my family in our sinus issues uh, ongoing. I assure you that uh, my trumpeting and tromboning up here is not accompaniment to our singing. Uh, so I'm just thankful for your patience with that. Bryant and I, when we used to pal around together in the Birmingham area, uh, Birmingham and Gardendale and things like that, we used to talk about how uh, service to God has to be genuine and how uh, we don't want fakery. We, we, you know, we want to be real with each other. And even among brethren sometimes there is this sense of almost a, a facade type thing. And I, maybe that's not intentional and maybe that's reading too much into certain people's hearts and uh, we want to be careful about that. But it warms my heart to know that he's working with a group that, uh, based on everything I can see, is one of the most genuine groups I've ever seen. And uh, you're to be commended for that. Uh, I appreciate your work here, and I hope you'll lift Bryant up as he works with you here. When Jesus said to Simon Peter, asking him, do you love me more than these? And he asked him this three times. And Peter says, yes, of course I love you. And he's grieved the third time. And we remember that that's because Peter, uh, at least this is thought, it's because Peter denied Jesus three times. And in each of those points, he charges Peter to feed his sheep, feed his lambs, tend his sheep. The idea of tending and feeding is the work of the local congregation. I think we've already established that in the last hour. We're here to help each other feed on the Word. We're here to absorb this together. You see, I tell people, we're not here to put on a show. We're not here to be entertaining. Someone says to me, I enjoyed your lesson. I, I get that. Enjoy it. That's fine. Uh, but, but we know it's not entertainment. If you're looking for entertainment, I'm not it. I'm not entertaining. But the, the word of the Lord is what's important here. And uh, feeding my sheep, tending my lambs, is uh, on all of our shoulders to accomplish. Let me say this as well. The task of growing elders is a great task because the work that results is what God intended. And I say growing elders... Because what do we do sometimes? We look around and we may kind of pop our heads up and look at the men of the congregation and say, do we have anybody who's qualified for the eldership? And maybe we answer, oh, oh no, not right. Well, we got one guy, but well, okay. And then we wait around another five or seven years. Maybe we pop up our heads again. Anybody qualified? No? Okay. And then we just keep going on in that way. I don't believe that that's what God is intending us to do. Uh, you know, I, I really appreciate a brother who is up uh, near the Russellville, Alabama area, um, who has for quite a while now hosted elder studies. Um, the basic idea at the congregation he works with is that if a young couple gets engaged, they get invited to the study. And the whole idea is that he's going to help groom these couples into the idea of serving as elders. So often, this is an intimidating thought. 
Again, like we talked about in the first hour, some look at that and some see the trials and troubles of the eldership and they say, ooh, I don't want that. But let's remind ourselves, as we saw in our reading, this is a good work. It's helpful for the church. And even more than that, it's needed for the church. So I would suggest that if we're not actively working as a congregation so that we can have qualified elders, we're not doing God's will. In a sense, you could make the charge that we're sinning against God if we're not working on that. I'm not saying that every moment that we don't have elders, we stand in condemnation, because I don't believe that's the case. But I do think that there, there needs to be some sort of vision for us to see moving forward with the congregation, say, here's where we want to be in 10 years. You know, there are companies, there are corporations in this world that have 50-year business plans. They know how much they want to be earning and in their profit margins in 40 or 50 years. Don't you think the Lord's people can have a mindset of where we want our congregation to be in 10 years? Members here, where do you want the Garden City group to be in 10 years? Think about that. And, and, and get that visualization in your mind. And share that with each other. And part of what we're going to be looking at this morning deals with what I call the qualities of pastors, elders, shepherds. I believe it's all the same office. We'll look into the details of that. But I want to say this. All of these qualities are important. And we as a congregation, you know, some of these qualities we may not have 100% the answers on. But, but I, would, I would say as a congregation, for the health of the congregation, we all need to have an understanding among ourselves, at the very least, what we're looking for. And, and strive toward that. When considering these qualities, we can't add to or take away what we've been given. And that's what's very important about this. Even on, uh, some might say, the more conservative scale, we can still add to these things. So we need to be careful about that. And, and when we get to the qualities, you notice I've got, I had three handouts for you all this morning, so I hope it's not too much to shuffle around. But that last one uh, I got from a study with Wes Brown. And, and the organization I just thought was so spot on and helpful. So I would encourage you to look at that on your own time, and we'll run through that toward the end of this lesson. But we will not be covering it in detail but I do want to notice some basic things. Um, obviously, we're not going to cover deacons. We don't have any record of churches having deacons without elders. So the importance here would be to think about securing an eldership and thinking about what that role is. I want to say, too, these are not impossible ideals to accomplish. We're given these qualities so that the elders of God's church can do the work as God has given us to do it. We're not looking for supermen. We're not looking for perfect men. We're looking for and we are grooming godly men who will fit these qualities. So that's our hope. That's our, our, our mindset in looking at this. I want to note that God has always wanted elders or shepherds among his people. This has always been the case. Before and after the flood, you had some aspect of the patriarchs. Genesis 2.18, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Man, Adam, in a sense was the patriarch even then. God intended Adam to be the leader 
for Eve. But sadly, he failed in those efforts and led her astray. And because of that, sin came into the world, Paul tells us in Romans. Note in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. I want to note that it's not just that this woman is to be in silence. If that were the case, none of you ladies should have been singing this morning, right? No, it's not about the silence necessarily. It's about having authority over a man. That's what Paul is teaching. So, in that context, he talks about Adam formed first, then Eve. And he doesn't talk about Eve in a sense that she didn't understand. Adam was the one that did understand, that should have led her, but he failed in that leadership. That's what that passage is about. It's not about how weak Eve was necessarily. So we need to notice that we had this idea of patriarchs. And then even after the flood, you had that notice, uh, that, that concept with Abraham and so forth. You also had, once the nation of Israel became a nation, shepherds or rulers over the flock. In Exodus 18.21, God is telling them you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Why did he do this? Well, Moses has some aspect in this. Of course, we remember that his father-in-law Jethro was sort of the one that was instigational of this, that he kind of came to him and he said, hey, you can't handle all the people's woes and problems by yourself. And essentially he was telling him to delegate. And it's the same thing that Moses says in Deuteronomy 1.12. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And the passage goes on, but we don't have time to go through all of it. In Deuteronomy 17, we have a, a model of what God expects the king over his people to be someday. And we mentioned earlier it was a sin for the people to want a king to rule over them like the nations. But let's also remember that God intended a king for Israel at some point. And he had specific intentions for that. And you notice in that passage, we won't read through it, but you notice in that passage, he intends for that ruler to write his own copy of the law, to know the law, and to read it. I wonder if Josiah looked at that and heard that, that maybe that was what brought him to tears in recognizing he had never been told that. Or perhaps that had been lost somewhere along the way. The the immensity of what the people had given up and forsaken in God's law, overwhelming him in that. Josiah was a good leader. He was a good man. He took responsibility for his people. Even beyond that too, we have elders in the New Testament church. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 1, Peter writes, The elders who are among you, Go ahead and turn there if you will. I'm hearing some pages ruffling. I don't want to go too quickly. And I'll take this excuse to take a drink of water. First Peter 5. Peter writes, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, 
and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Peter gives some clear ideas about what the eldership looks like. And this, is, this may not be the best example to think of, but I mean, I guess, again, my mind, in thinking of times with Bryant, Bryant invited me to go to uh, church service one time uh, at a place that uh, I think I would say would be a more institutionally minded group. And we came and we listened to that, to that uh, preacher that came there. And the title of his lesson was The All-Sufficiency of the Word. And it was kind of amazing because in that lesson, kind of all he did was pound the podium and talk about how bad Muslims were, how bad Catholics were. And I kept waiting. You know, like, well, is he going to deal with problems in the church? Is he going to talk about what the church is dealing with? Never one word about that. It was all about all these groups out here that are so wrong. And I had, I, with that title, I couldn't not approach him. And I, I want to keep something in mind. This fellow was at least in his 60s. And Bryant and I were in our 20s at the time. So here's a couple of young guys. You know, those of you who are older, you know, if a couple of young guys come up to you and ask you something about the lesson you just preached, what's your response going to be? I'll tell you, I hope it's not like this guy's response. We had some very simple questions. We weren't trying to waylay him or ambush him, although we were accused of that by the local preacher there. But we were just simply like, listen, you're talking about the all-sufficiency of the word, but the group that you're with here seems to be doing some things that are outside of the word. He took great offense to this. Started to rail against me about Roy E. Cogdell. And I'm like, what does Roy E. Cogdell have to do with any of this? We're talking about the Word. I say all that to say this. Elders, I think the, the, the sense that you serve, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. It's very important that as we work on building the, this eldership, that we know that we don't want these to be men that are just saying, hey, I'm the elder, so you just do what I say, okay? Why don't you just you know, sit down and be quiet, okay? And, and, and sadly, I've known of elders that might have acted like that. Here's the thing. We're called to lead as Christ leads. And, and I really appreciate the songs that Bryant has shared with this. God has an intention with this office. And we might want to ask ourselves, you know, elder, bishop, shepherd, who are we talking about here? Because we have multiple words being shared and used in the New Testament for that. Well, I would say in 1 Timothy 4, for example, and you might turn to these as we discuss them, uh, the term elder or presbyter, the Greek presbyteros, uh, 1 Timothy 4, we look there, at the word used here in verse 14. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. So the eldership, uh, the idea of an elder or presbyter, 
it, it really emphasizes age, experience, or wisdom. There is a non-technical and a technical use of the term. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers. I want to note that that older man here, are we talking about an elder? Now I think in the context it would tell us that we're talking about just a brother who is older than you. Someone that you need to respect and appreciate from that perspective. But he's not going to have the same kind of authority as an elder. Look later on in the chapter in verse 19. Verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. So in here we have an instance where this elder... Uh, is not to have received an accusation except from two or three witnesses. Well, we go back to verse 1. If it's the same person or the same office, well, Paul is contradicting himself. Because in verse 1 he's saying, do not rebuke an elder ma- older man. And now he's saying, I can uh, rebuke him, right? I can bring an accusation against him. And in fact, in verse 20, those who are sinning. Who's those who are sinning? It's not just a general sense. It's one of those elders that are sinning. You rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. So it's important that we note the distinction here. It's important that we note the context and the usage of the term and where it's being used. An elder or a presbyter, it indicates the work of guidance by reason of maturity and experience. The term bishop or overseer Episcopos, which you might uh, notice we have in the religious world, the Episcopal Church. And they use that term to think about that. You might have also noticed Presbyteros, the Presbyterian Church. There's an emphasis in those places of uh, rulers and authority. But, uh, again, in this term, in the biblical sense, it emphasizes rule and authority. This term is used in Acts 20 when Paul is talking to the elders in, uh, in Ephesus. And also in uh, Philippians 1 and verse 1, the elders of the church there. The same term, interestingly, is also applied to Jesus in 1 Peter 2 and verse 25. You have, uh, in, in terms of recognizing him and his place. I don't want to mangle that quote, so I'm going quickly to it. 1 Peter 2 and verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And which is interesting too, because we already have our third word in that verse as well, the shepherd aspect. But the bishop or overseer aspect, rule and authority, it indicates the work of superintending. The thought that he does have authority to carry these things out. So we have a sense that he has maturity and experience. He has a work of guidance to to teach and to lead in that way. We also note that he is to have a superintending authority. He has a sense of being able to rule by authority. I want to say that even though you don't want an elder that has an attitude of, you know, sit down and be quiet and let us just do what we're doing, you also have to recognize that as, as members of the church, if there are things the elders are doing that you don't immediately understand, maybe you take some time and give some grace and mercy to them and work with them in these things. 
You see, it's not about starting an uprising every few minutes. It's about recognizing these men are here to help us. The third term that we find in Scripture is pastor or shepherd. Poimen is the Greek there. And that is, uh, we find that in Ephesians 4.11. And I want to turn there too, because Ephesians 4.11 is very helpful for us to uh, not just recognize the distinction among uh, the church of the elders, but to recognize the distinguishing factors between pastors and evangelists. Look at Ephesians 4 and 11. Ephesians 4 verse 11. And he gave himself, excuse me, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now let me break that down for us. Do we have apostles on the earth with us today? I don't believe so. Now, I do want to caution us to remember that we do have apostles uh, in the sense of their writing. And we also know that Peter and Andrew and John and all the other apostles are still living and reigning with God right now. So if someone asks you, does the church of Christ have, have apostles, your answer should be yes. But you should qualify that to understand we're, we follow the apostles' doctrine. We follow the teaching that was handed down from the Messiah and given to, to, to know the way to go in these ways. But we note, too, that we don't necessarily have inspired prophets upon the earth either. So upon the earth here, we don't have apostles, we don't seem to have prophets, uh, but we do have evangelists. Evangelist is essentially the one who is going to be preaching the word, uh, whoever that is. And let me say, we're not limited to just one evangelist per congregation. You can have multiple evangelists, that's not an issue. But I want to see the distinguishing factor here. Some people see the evangelist and call him pastor. Some people call me, are you the pastor of the church here? And I say, no, we don't have any pastors. And, and you know, depending on the situation, I may go into more of that than others. Maybe you don't have time to correct it as much as possible. But you can say, I, I can say an answer sometimes, no, but I, I am the evangelist here or something to that effect. But can we see the distinguish? This the distinction here between the two terms? I think it's important that we note that. The term pastor emphasizes care, direction, leadership, and authority. Again, the same term is applied to Jesus in the verse that we read. It indicates the work of leading and tending a flock. This really is the closest term to what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 21 to Simon Peter. I want to note, too, that these terms are interchangeable. Uh, let's look over at Acts 20. Acts 20. We didn't turn there before, but I'd like to go there now. Acts 20 and verse 17. Acts 20 and verse 17. Here in this verse, it's, uh, Luke writes that from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church, the elders of the church. Now look in verse 28. Verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. This leads me to the conclusion that all three of these terms are describing the same office. We don't have distinctive offices. We don't have... 
a pastor and then elders and then deacons. Excuse me, and then deacons. The pastors, plural, they rule over the flock as overseers. They shepherd the flock. They guide the flock and they lead the flock. The Bible shows us this as a whole in a, in a very good way. God, I think it's important we note that he intends his elders to work. This is a work to be desired. It's not an honor to be coveted. This is not something you put on your resume for work. I, I, I can't help but feel disgust at those who proudly say, I'm a deacon at this local church, and, and just you know want to share that. Some of the best men I've ever known, uh, I maybe don't even know until a little bit that they're an elder or a deacon. I find that out later on. And that just shows me their humility. It's important that we note that this is not just something we look for because it makes us look good. It is, as we read in 1 Timothy 3, a good work. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we note that elders should be honored for their work's sake yet they must not desire it for honor's sake. Paul writes, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. This is a divine office. It's not a political office. It's not a place we uh, strive for and step on others to get. I want us to note, too, in the passage we read in Acts 20, Did you notice that the Holy Spirit had made them overseers? It's the same way today. We might be tempted to think, well, the Holy Spirit doesn't really have anything to do with it now. We just kind of pull from the Bible. Well, wait a minute. How did we get the Bible? Not the Bible through the Holy Spirit. And whatever the Holy Spirit has put down, that's what we're following. And so if we follow what the Holy Spirit has put down, the Holy Spirit is still making those elders important we note that the same way he makes Christians is how the Holy Spirit makes elders he gives the terms and conditions and we follow the instructions when a local church selects officers they have to fit the terms laid down by inspired men remember in Acts 6 when the uh, Hellenistic widows were not being served properly they were being neglected in the distribution Well, the solution for that was to set up men, choose men from among them, to fulfill this work. Now, in a sense, you could say that's that's a deaconship, in a sense, a a helpership in that way. But I bring up that example just to show that they didn't have a choice. You know, when the apostles said, choose from among you these men and talked about their qualifications, they didn't get to go off and say, well, I know that they said that, but maybe we can just choose who we want. Did they get to do that? No. They follow the terms that were laid down by inspired men. And that's what we do as well. Elders are not made by a political process. Have you ever seen someone run for elder? They kind of come to a realization that, uh, that we're thinking about that in a local congregation and maybe they start showing up at some Bible studies that they never came to before. It's great that they come to those Bible studies. Don't get me wrong. But you know, to me, that might raise a little bit of a red flag in my mind. This guy's kind of aiming at something and maybe we need to be careful about that. If it's all genuine and it's all real, then that's fine. But uh, it, you know, men 
are often appointed elder because of fleshly considerations. Maybe they're well educated. We got someone who uh, you know teaches at a local university. He's very well read. He's able to bring in a lot of sources into his teaching and things like that. That's okay. That's fine. But how about other considerations? Maybe he has a great personality. Maybe everybody likes him and everybody appreciates him. Well, that's good. But that that's not what we're looking at here necessarily. I know we're talking about a good reputation, but that's not all. Social prestige. Maybe he's known in the in the world. And maybe we feel like, well, if he was an elder here, then he could make the connections to really help us grow, you know? In the same basis, maybe he has a great business success. Maybe he comes from a good family. All of these things can be good in and of themselves. I don't want to knock any of that necessarily. But I think it's important that we note when we're looking at an elder, we're looking at the whole package. We're looking at who this man is. Not what he could be, not what we hope he will be someday. We're looking at what this man is. It's also, of course, a local office. It's not a diocese. We're not appointing someone to be over all of the churches in this area, which is kind of interesting. I, I, don't, I don't imagine, I don't know if there are any other congregations in uh, this county uh, that, that are faithful churches, but I know in, in Calhoun County, uh, pretty much Golden Springs is it, as far as uh, a church in my mind that, that's, that's going by the Bible. And I'm not saying that to pat my own back. The brethren were doing that before I even got there. But, uh, you know, in a sense, if we had elders at Golden Springs, we could say, yeah, we're, we're the elders of Calhoun County. But if another congregation comes up over there in that next town, it's autonomous. We don't get to decide. We don't get to tell them what to do. Because that's not the way that the, the Bible shows us that churches work together. Elders were only in local churches in the New Testament, and that's how they worked. Again, the pastors are there. Feel free to look at them. Elders do not oversee the people of the, for the work of sister congregations. Maybe there's a congregation across the way that, uh, that maybe someone's doing wrong in there. We have to be careful. Someone says, well, aren't you going to disfellowship that person over there? They're not even a part of our congregation. You know, so we need to be careful that we're not holding each other to task for things that uh, really would be meddling in the affairs of other congregations. It's also an administrative office. It's not legislative. Uh, they're administrators under the chief shepherd. 1 Peter 5, verse 4. So, so again, you're not the ones that control all of this. You're, you're basically stewards. You're set up in this place to be able to look at the congregation and say, does this follow what the head, what Christ wants for the church? That's what we're looking at. That's what we're trying to bring up. They rule as a good, good husband and father rules his family. We learned that in 1 Timothy 3. And they rule by being like the servant king. I want to look uh, particularly at John 13. John 13. In verse 12. John 13 and verse 12. John 13 and, and I believe really John 10 are two passages that when we talk about elders and we think about elders are extremely important to remember. In John 10, Jesus talks about himself as the shepherd of the flock and how he knows his flock and his flock is known by him. I would suggest that that's included in the thought of the qualities of 
uh, elders or pastors. But also in John 13 and verse 12, remember when Jesus washed the feet of the apostles. He says, says here, when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, has, has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I think at the end of the day we need to recognize that elders that are not willing to go the distance and do what they're expecting everyone else to do, that, that you're not ready for that work. This is not on the same level, but there was a fella uh, I worked for for a number of years at a jewelry store in Columbus, Mississippi, and I, I really uh, appreciate so much about him. But the first time I came in, just the first day to work, he was in the bathroom like cleaning out the toilet. The owner of the business. And I was just thinking, you know, don't you want me or somebody else to do that? But it was, it was a good example in that sense that he was willing to do uh, you know, anything for his business. Uh, but on a greater sense, here Jesus stooping down and washing the feet, the work of a slave he's willing to do. How far are we willing to go for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, uh, you know, I, I would love to go through each of these with a fine-tooth comb, but I, I, I think it's important that we note some basic things about the qualities of elders. And you might notice I'm not using that term qualifications. It's not like, these are not job qualifications, okay? Job qualifications, yeah. I, I guess that, that also goes along the same, same idea, but I think qualities is a better term. Because it more leads us to understand this is who this person is rather than the things that we hope him to be someday. Uh, it, it's, it's very dangerous when we put someone in the eldership hoping that they improve in certain areas. Uh, because what if they don't improve? What if they get worse? Uh, we have an important work ahead of us with the local congregation. We don't want to endanger that. But the basic thought here would be, this is a man of good reputation, good character. He has self-control. He has a spiritual view of possessions. He's a qualified teacher, and he's a man leading a godly family. You might notice, I'm not looking at these in the order necessarily that the Holy Spirit put them in the passages. We're just sort of uh, uh, collecting them into these basic subjects. In terms of being blameless or above reproach, being of good report, Remember, it's not only among members that this is included. All of this has to show us that this is not a man who has never sinned, but it's a man who can't be held to task for something that he's done in the community or otherwise. Maybe some horrible situation has stained a man's reputation to the point that he'll never be taken seriously in the community. Does that mean he can't be welcome in the church and be a brother who's loved and appreciated by us? Not at all. But it might mean that he may not command the kind of respect and appreciation in the world that the Lord wants in an elder. And even among the brethren, more importantly, we need to make sure that that character, that reputation is there. The idea of character, holy, in a very sense, I, I, I think it's important when we look at the term of holiness separateness is included with this. He's, this is not someone who just doesn't care about uh, making sure his life is different from the world. And so maybe in his personal life it's very similar.
He's just. He's, he's fair in these things, in his report, in his understanding here. He's impartial. He's patient. He's calm and considerate. He knows that sometimes God's work progresses more slowly than at other times. He's able to wait on the Lord. He's of good behavior. He's orderly in his life, dignified, courteous, modest. He's a lover of good. I think this is a pretty important one, right? He loves to see good being done. He has a particular appreciation for those who seek to practice good. He's not self-willed, meaning he's not someone who is only concerned by what he wants. He's not stubborn. He's not unyielding in judgment. He's not unconcerned about others. In terms of his self-control, he's temperate. This is a man who has developed his self-control, his passions, his carnal desires, his tongue, and his temper have all been honed to the point that he can control himself even in tense and emotional situations. He's vigilant. This is a man who is constantly watchful for dangers that threaten the flock. He shepherds. He's sober. He's sober-minded. I think it's important that we note that sober is different and distinct from not given to wine. We're not just talking about he doesn't have alcohol. He has a sober and serious mind. He doesn't flippantly reject the seriousness of certain things. He's not soon angry. He's able to control his temper. Not just to keep from being angry, but being able to be angry at the right time and for the right reason. Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. He's not a brawler. Literally, that means not fighting. This is a man who is going to avoid fighting on a personal basis. He doesn't seek for a confrontation. He tries to defuse situations before they turn contentious, and he avoids conflict for conflict's sake. Now that term brawler it might make you think, well, he's just not going to resort to physical fighting. But then we follow that up with not a striker. That striker aspect goes more with the physical part of it. So when we talk about not a brawler, it's just a general sense where we're going to de- diffuse, uh, defuse these situations before they become big. The, the term striker talks about bruiser, ready for a blow, a pugnacious, contentious, quarrelsome person. I don't know if anybody here has ever heard someone suggest in a business meeting that maybe we step outside to handle this. I've heard stories about that. I've never seen that myself. But what a shame it is if brethren have to resort to fist fighting to resolve some conflict. Uh, this is a man who's going to avoid physical altercations to handle this. So, in general, what we can recognize is we don't want any Popeyes or Bluto's in the eldership, right? People who are going to say, hey, let's go settle this outside. Obviously uh, not proper. He's not given to wine. He's not tearing at the wine. I would say this is a man who does not give himself over to alcohol. I know that we may have uh, differing opinions of this, and we talk to some people out there. Maybe they claim he could drink but not get drunk. But I think we need to go back to Proverbs 23 and other passages to really look at how wine is talked about in Scripture to be able to come to the right conclusion there. We don't have time to go into that today, but uh, open your thoughts and, and questions for that. Sorry, give me just one moment here.
This man has a spiritual view of possessions. He's not greedy of filthy lucre or greedy of base gain. This is not a man who's going to allow himself to prosper by doing something wrong. In the secular world, don't we see that all the time? Don't we see? I mean, it's fascinating to me that companies can, can commit crimes technically under the law, but all they have to do is pay a fine. And it's no problem. I had a, 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 I knew someone once that told me that she didn't have medical insurance. This was after Obamacare had come out. And she said, it's easier just to pay the fine. That was in her mind. So, so we live in a world where breaking the law is kind of accepted, right? And that, that, that the thought of, of uh, disputing that authority is not really regarded with a whole lot of seriousness. This person can't be like that. He needs to be someone who does the right thing always. And maybe he's made mistakes, of course. Again, we're not talking about that, but he has a mindset that says, I'm always going to do the right thing. I'm not going to cheat on my taxes. I'm not going to do this or that. He's a man who's not covetous. The RSV says he's free from the love of money. And I like that thought. He doesn't make money his primary concern in life. Many will mask this desire with the reason that they have to provide for their family. And they often provide them with such material wealth that they spiritually die. We are warned clearly about money in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. This man is given to hospitality. And I love the definition of this word, loving strangers. You love strangers. You love to have people and, and, and give to them, give that hospitality. This is a man who has a home who is open to everyone. He's happy to receive and help people wherever the need is and to whomever needs it. He doesn't regard his home as a sanctuary that no one else can enter, but knows that he's been, what he's been given comes from God. And so it behooves him to share it. He does this not from a sense of duty but because he genuinely loves to be hospitable. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 4.9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. He is a qualified teacher. He's not a novice. He's not newly planted. He's not a new convert or a neophyte. I want to note, too, that this is not specifically dealing with the question of age. I know that we we've, most of us have been approached possibly with uh, Mormons evangelizing and might be interesting to see that you've got this young fellow in his 20s that is an elder of the Mormon church and you're just kind of like how does that work uh, we, but I want to note though that, that age is not the only sense here this is a man who has been seasoned he's withstood the rigors of not only becoming a Christian but living the life of a Christian and I would suggest if we have novices as elders as we note in the passage in uh, uh, chapter 3 and verse 6 of First Timothy, the problem of pride is going to rear its ugly head if we have novices in the eldership. This man is apt to teach, literally meaning skilled in teaching. I want to note it's not just that he's able to teach, but that he's skilled. It's not just that this man can get up in front of people and read a few Bible verses. This man is able to teach and to be able to share the word in a particular way. I'm not, talking, I'm not saying that he has to be some super qualified speaker. We're not talking about a good speaker. 
We're talking about a good teacher. I've known many very good teachers, teachers that are way, way better than I could ever hope to be, that may not in their own way be necessarily super qualified speakers. So when we note that, uh, this is a man who's been teaching Bible classes, leading personal studies, doing his best to teach others the gospel, being willing to go the distance in that. And some might say and look at this, well, maybe he just teaches by example. Well, let me suggest, can I become skilled at teaching by example? Even if I can, does teaching by example make it known to everyone undoubtedly that this person is skilled in teaching? How does that work? I know we teach by example, but I'm not sure that that's really what Paul is speaking of here. This man is holding fast the faithful word. He's holding firmly to or cleaving to it. This is a man who will not abandon the truth when pressure or difficulty arises. He'll hold true to God's word, enforce it when needed, and make it plain when evil arises. This is a necessity because elders must monitor and evaluate preachers and teachers within the congregation and ensure that false doctrine is not being taught. They need to ensure that the flock is being fed. I remember years ago, at an old church building, I uh, found some old letters and, and, and minutes from business meetings. And those are always interesting and entertaining to look through. But I saw at one point, uh, it, was, it, was, it was decades ago, that an elder had decided to step down from his position as elder because his hearing had gotten so bad. And he couldn't hear what was being taught and instructed. And I thought about that. I was like, what a wise move for that fellow to make. He knows that he needs to be able to monitor that and, and to see what, to hear what's being taught and to make sure that what's being taught is the truth. This man is uh, exhorting others. He's one who needs to be able to exhort. Exhort literally means to call to one's side, to call to one's aid. To address, speak to, call to, call upon, which may be done in the way of exhortation, entreaty, comfort, instruction. This is a man who is able and ready to exhort those who are in error from the word, whether knowingly or ignorantly. A man who is unable to correct others and remain silent in the face of false doctrine does not fit this quality. You need someone to be able to stand up for the word. To be able to, not in such a way, this doesn't really talk about necessarily fighting that false doctrine, but this is this really the image I get in my mind is a younger brother says something in the pulpit that may not be quite accurate. And here this elder comes to him, he calls him to the side, hey, come here, let me tell you something. Here's something you said here. I'm not really sure, do you really think that's the case here? I really That's the image I get here of someone who is lovingly correcting who's making these things uh, clear to everyone. This man, and this is one of the most important parts of this in my mind too, he needs to be able to convince the gainsayer. Literally this means to convict, confute, or refute. Usually with the suggestion of putting the convicted person to shame for saying these things. To speak against is rendered answering again in the AV of Titus uh, 2 and verse 9. The RV says gainsaying. The New King James Version literally says, convict those who contradict. This is a man who is able to use sound doctrine to convict those who are speaking against it. He can rebuke and refute those who talk back against the truth of God. I want to note, with all of these teaching qualities, 
It needs to be remembered that while there's no issue with elders including a supportive evangelist in these efforts, it's clear to me that these men must be able to handle these situations even without an evangelist present. A preacher I studied under told me one time the best situation he ever had for an eldership was one that told him, told him literally, your job is to study and to preach and to, to study with others out in the community. And he said, everything else is up to us. And he said that they called him in on maybe one or two situations the whole time he was there. It's troubling when you find elderships that literally can't handle issues among members without the preacher being involved. Again, I'm not saying that it's wrong to do that. I'm just saying we need elderships that can stand on their own, with or without an evangelist. Here's the point that I think really uh, maybe we have the most uh, distinction with, and this will be our last point. This is a man who leads a godly family. And I know, this sometimes is, these qualifications, these qualities, are sometimes the main things we're looking at. What's his marriage situation? What's his children's situation? We need to make sure we don't neglect the other parts of it. Because we can very easily, I think, sometimes find men who have those right situations. But maybe they don't have the other qualities in mind as well. This man is the husband of one wife. And there's a, there's a con, uh, conversation to be had here. And I'm just going to share my personal uh, opinion about some of these things. You take it or leave it. Take it with a grain of salt with what I say with some of this. But I think the main thing that we learn from this is that he is to be, uh, in the literal term, he's to be a one wife man. He's a one-woman man. Now, it could be that we're talking about that he's not a bachelor or a polygamist. It could be that polygamy would have been an issue in ancient times. I think it's important we note that his wife should be faithful to God. And I base that on 1 Timothy 3.11. When God talks about the deacons... He expects their wives to be faithful, so why would we expect the elder to be able to have a wife who's not faithful? We have controversy, of course, over the question of, okay, here's a fella who divorced his wife for a scriptural reason. He goes on and remarries. Is he still a one-woman man? Again, that's a question for us to resolve among each other. How does everybody feel about this? What are we looking for? And let's reach a point of harmony on our vision of what we want to build toward. So if the majority tends to think, well, no, I really think he's more than one woman involved in that situation, even if it's scriptural. And I've met some who feel like even if the wife dies, he's still not a one-woman man if he remarries. I don't know. But I do say this, the marriage bond is broken, I believe, when a man scripturally divorces his wife. And I base that on Matthew 19.9. That being said, of course, we raise the question of true innocence, even on the part who scripturally divorced his wife. So much of the eldership has to do with introspection and, and the man looking within himself and, and answering that question, is this who I am? It's not so much others pushing that on him. 
The quality of being blameless and of good report is absolutely essential to properly understand this. Many who scripturally divorce will even question their own actions. And so we have to be wise in understanding this. Another point of contention will be the term of faithful children. We have uh, that very term in Titus. And I would say, if, if we only had 1 Timothy 3, I would agree with the thoughts of some brethren that say, well, listen, this all has to do with the faithfulness of the children while they're in the home. Some people teach that and say that. Once the children leave the home, you can't control that, and so that's not in the scope of this. But then we have Titus saying that he has faithful children. I don't think we can take the context of 1 Timothy 3 and plaster it onto Titus and say, oh, but that just means they're faithful to the Father. My apologies if anyone here believes that. That's fine. If that's what you believe, then okay. We can have that conversation. That's not, I don't have, I don't, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. But this is, of course, the plural form of a child. And that term faithful means believing or trusting. Interestingly, the RSV and the ESV says his children are believers. And the ASV says having children that believe. So I would conclude this man has children who are faithful to God. The word itself is plural. But I do want to say this too. By this, this by itself does not necessarily mean that a man must have more than one child. Some people take from this and say, well, it's plural. So obviously you can't have a single child and be an elder. Well, I would suggest that we look to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7 and verse 9. Jesus asked there, What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, there's that same word being used in Titus 1. Good gifts to your children, the technon word. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Are parents of single children invalidated from the words that Jesus says here? I think he's speaking accommodatively of children in a general sense. Now again, I'm not arguing hard to say that we need to, you know, we need to say for sure it can be one child. But I'm just saying that I don't think it's as conclusive as we might think that since the plural of children is here, it means it has to be more than one child. And I think we have to be very careful uh, about how we look at this as well from a standpoint I've heard the argument well an elder has to be able to resolve disputes and how can you resolve disputes when you only have one child well I'll tell you this having one child of my own there have been times where I've resolved disputes between Sharon and Jericho there's been times when she's resolved disputes between Jericho and me right so it's not just about that we can't use our own reasoning to make up these qualifications and say, well, it has to be more than one children. I just don't know about that. I'm just not sure. Again, I, I leave this for Bryant to pick up the pieces. <laughs> um, but, but no, I, I say this to, for us to be thinking and to be studying together and working together on these things. Please don't come away from this lesson saying, well, Stephen said it could have been one child, so I'm just going to go on. No, do your reading. Do your study, do your focusing on these things. So, I want to say too, since we cannot establish from the text how many of these children are faithful, 
I believe we have to assume that all of this man's children are to be faithful. When we consider the qualification in 1 Timothy, having his children in submission with all reverence, and in Titus, having faithful children, it paints the picture of all children, to me, being faithful to God. The same Greek words for reverent and faithful are used to describe the children and the wife in these passages. If we can allow for one child to be unfaithful to God, then I believe we can allow for the wife to be unfaithful to God as well. So there's a problem there if you want to go this route of saying, well, if the majority of his children are faithful to God, it's, it's okay. If he has one, he's lost. I just don't see that distinction. That's just me, again. Could, could have some more good study and conversations on that. This man rules well. He's to preside or to rule. It means to maintain. He's proven his ability to rule by how well he rules his house. And this manifests in leading his family to godliness. He leads his wife and children to be faithful to God with all that they have. This is not just making sure the kids have a lot of extracurricular activities and making sure that the the wife uh, has enough money to go shopping and things like that. That's not what it's all about. It's all about leading their souls to Christ. And uh, it's important that we rule our houses well, men. Um, Having his children in subjection and obedience... This isn't limited to the child's time within the home. House will denote the term of family, not just home. I believe this is a man whose children are in subjection not only to him but to God. He does not let them live with a flippant attitude about faithfulness. Well, we have run through this, and you probably feel like I have just opened up a fire hose and just sprayed all this out at you at once. I really hope that you'll look into these. Uh, If you have any questions, feel free to talk to Bryant. But no, I'm happy to answer anything while I'm here, and feel free to contact me at any point. I want to say this. When we look at the qualifications of this man that we're thinking of here, can we say that these qualifications are not things that are necessary for the Christian to have? Yeah, I'm not saying that we have to have faithful children to be faithful Christians. And, you know, there are some distinctions there. But can we not all appreciate that there is a sense that we're all being called to this place? I mean, the majority of these qualities are things that we're all to aspire to in the kingdom of God. So as we think about these things, as we resolve these things, I just encourage you to think about Jesus' words. And think about the fact that he calls upon you to lead in your family, to lead in your local congregation, to be the people that he has set up, the city that's set on a hill, the salt of the earth. And in working toward these things, you'll be fulfilling these goals. But this morning, maybe you realize that that you're not where you need to be. And that starts when you decide to give your heart to Christ and open yourself up to him. If you need to obey the gospel this morning, if you feel like you've faltered and fallen back and need to rededicate yourself to the Lord, we want to be here for you. Whatever your needs, please come while we stand and sing. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I will hasten to him, hasten so glad.